Tristan File is going to read our text for us. So, Tristan, come on up. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. See to it. <clears throat> See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in the bodily form. <clears throat> and in him you have been made complete. And he is in is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and working of God, who raised him from the dead. Thank you. Amen. Well, that's our text. There should be an outline in your bulletin. Uh, there are printed messages at both exits. Uh, you can get up and get one if you didn't get one and want one. Um, and uh, if you have a mobile device, there's a password to the uh, church Wi-Fi there. You can track with the message on the church website as well, uh, as long as you promise not to surf the web during the sermon, right? <clears throat> All these modern devices. You notice that his Bible was his, uh, was his uh, cell phone. <clears throat> They're wonderful if we use them in the right way, aren't they? You know, when a counterfeiter wants to uh, hand off fake money, he doesn't go get a Monopoly set and start handing out Monopoly money, but rather he tries to make it look as real as he can, as real as real money. The... Reality sets in when somebody takes one of those fake $100 bills to the bank and the teller holds it up to the light and looks at that hidden strip in it that's missing and says, uh, I'm sorry, but your $100 bill is worthless. At that point, the person has been deceived by a counterfeiter. You know, even more serious is when someone is deceived by a counterfeit Christ, because the victim doesn't just lose $100. The victim loses eternal life. And Satan is a master spiritual counterfeiter, and I assure you he doesn't use spiritual monopoly money when he tries to pawn off uh, false religion on other people. He speaks about Jesus, Jesus Christ, about the church. He uses the Bible. He uses Christian terminology. Uh, Satan's supposedly Christian counterfeit religions, they all promote good works and uh, Christian morality and family values. But invariably, when you examine them and hold them up to the light of Scripture, they are missing something. They invariably promote salvation through human effort, human works. 
They deny the deity and the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the sad thing is the undiscerning think that following this false religion is going to get them into heaven. And on judgment day, they're going to end up in hell. I had a guy last year, he was a Jehovah's Witness, and he wrote to me and said, uh, I've really appreciated your online teaching. And I thought, really? <laughs> you know, where's he, what's he reading? Um, but we, we exchanged a half a dozen letters, and he tried to convince me Jesus isn't God, and I tried to convince him uh, that without Christ, he's not going to heaven. And it finally just kind of led to an impasse. But it's that sort of false teaching that Paul is combating here in our text and in the book of Colossians. Um, It was not blatantly non-Christian. That would have been easy to spot. It was counterfeit Christian. It used Christian terminology and talked about Christ and all of that, but it blended it with Judaic and Greek thought. And the early church, you have to remember, did not have the wonderful tool we have, the New Testament, in their language at that point. They were getting books as Paul and others were writing them, but there was a very real danger they would be led astray by this destructive heresy. And so Paul writes these things to try and expose the counterfeit and present the true. And he um, is showing us that union with the living Christ is far superior to empty religion that these false teachers were promoting. Now, as I mentioned in my prayer, there's some difficult things in this text. This isn't the easiest uh, text in the New Testament to teach, and uh, I'm not going to go into all of the exegetical problems that I had to wade through to put this sermon together, but um, even though it is a difficult text, I would remind you, through the Spirit, Paul wrote this to believers who came out of paganism not more than five years before he wrote this to them. And my point is, if they could get it, then by the Holy Spirit's help, I think we can track with him and understand it as well. The first point that Paul makes in verse 8 is that religion, apart from the living Christ, is empty and dangerous. It's in verse 8. Let me read that verse again. See to it. Pay attention, in other words, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. There was a well-known New Testament scholar in the 19th century named J.B. Lightfoot, and uh, I liked his paraphrase of this. He wrote, Be on your guard. Do not suffer yourselves to fall prey to certain persons who would lead you captive by a hollow and deceitful system which they call philosophy. They substitute the traditions of men for the truth of God. They enforce an elementary discipline of mundane ordinances fit only for children. I'll explain that last phrase in a moment. Theirs is not the gospel of Christ. Verse 8 is the only 
time the word philosophy is used in the entire New Testament. Paul was probably, as Bishop Lightfoot indicated, picking up the false teacher's own term for their teaching. They used uh, our philosophy as a highfalutin term. And Paul was saying, it sounds impressive, it promises a lot, but really it is an empty, deceptive shell. And if you're not careful, they're going to take you captive by it because they were appealing to people's pride to be tuned into this philosophy. Um, I majored in philosophy in college. I don't know if any of you guys are doing that. Not a lot of job future, I might add, for philosophy majors. Uh, I started in engineering, believe it or not, but um, I won't tell that story. But anyway, uh, I, I was from a sheltered Christian background, and I wanted to find out if the other side, the the world, and I was at a secular university, did they have anything to offer? Did they have any explanation for the hard questions that we all wrestle with of why are we here and how do we deal with the problem of evil and all of those kind of questions? And the only part really I appreciated was were the logic courses. That was helpful to try to understand logical fallacies and how to think through arguments and all. That was good. But really, I found out they could raise a lot of good questions, but they had no answers, the philosophers. But ironically, in spite of having no answers to all the questions they raised, and often they would admit they didn't, there was this smug arrogance about them, where they were so smart, and they took great delight in shooting down the arguments for the existence of God, and pointing out the supposed contradictions in the Bible and all of that stuff. Um, if you saw the movie God's Not Dead, that philosophy prof really nailed it. He was exactly like my professors were in, in college, um, arrogant, but really knowing nothing. I think a prime example of this kind of philosophical, religious arrogance is a thing called the Jesus Seminar, Maybe you've heard of it. It was founded in 1985, and I went on their website this week to see if it's still going. Unfortunately, it is. Um, Here is their stated purpose off their website. To review each of the sayings and deeds attributed to Jesus in the Gospels and determine which of them could be considered authentic. So you see their assumption. Uh, They're probably not all authentic, but we're going to tell you which ones are. And the way they figure that out is they get a bunch of so-called scholars together, and they vote on which sayings and teachings and deeds of Jesus they think really he did. And if you ask the question, how do they figure that out, it's purely subjective. Well, I think that sounds like Jesus. No, that couldn't have been Jesus. So they're conjuring up their own mindset on who Jesus was, voting on it, and here's their conclusion. Um, They say that about 18% of the sayings and 16% of the deeds of Jesus, attributed to Jesus in the Gospels, are authentic. The seminar was founded by a guy named Robert Funk, who about 10 years ago discovered his horrible error when he died. 
But here's what he wrote. We should give Jesus a demotion. It's no longer credible to think of Jesus as divine. Jesus' divinity goes together with the old theistic way of thinking about God. Isn't that an incredible statement? A theistic way of thinking about God. In other words, a God way of thinking about God. (laughs) He's coming at it from a humanistic way of thinking about God, that God is the creation of our imagination. So he's tipping his hand. He goes on. The plot early Christians invented for a divine redeemer figure is as archaic as the mythology in which it is framed. A Jesus who drops down out of heaven, performs some magical act that frees human beings from the power of sin, rises from the dead, and returns to heaven is simply no longer credible. The notion that he will return at the end of time and sit in cosmic judgment is equally incredible. We must find a new plot for a more credible Jesus. Well, he's found out that wasn't so incredible after all, but at least he was honest about where he's coming from. More often, false teachers are guarded and sly and careful to hide their true views. But the point is this. All false teachers replace God's authority in his word with the authority of their own intellect. And that's why Paul in verse 8 refers to philosophy and to the tradition of men because their ideas originate with man, not with God. They draw people in as Satan did originally with Eve when he said, has God said, and then he questions the word of God and offers something more plausible that appeals to pride and Um, basically the idea is we're free to sit in judgment and determine which part is God's word and which part isn't rather than God's word sitting in judgment on us and our sin. Now, Paul also describes this false human religious philosophy, verse 8, as being according to the elementary principles of, of the world, and that is a phrase that takes up a lot of ink in commentaries. Uh, They debate, what does that phrase mean? Um, It occurs down in verse 20 as well, and Paul uses the the identical phrase in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 3 and 9. The New American Standard is translating it literally, elementary principles of the world. The Greek word meant to set things in a row, and it was used of the ABCs. And uh, I believe that Paul here, well, first of all, let me mention, most commentators and even some translations think that because Paul was mentioning um, Christ's dominance over heavenly authorities and all of that. He does that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 in several places. Uh, Because these false teachers were mentioning worship of the angels, they think that what Paul means by the elementary principles of the world is elementary spirits of the world or elemental spirits. And if you have an ESV, normally I like the ESV, but I take issue here with it and today's new international version 
they don't translate the text, they interpret it. When they translate it, elemental spirits. That's not what the word means. It means elementary principles. So I'm going against the majority here, but Bishop Lightfoot held the view I'm going to present. Based on the content, both here and in Galatians, the context, I think by elementary principles, what Paul is referring to is any approach to God by keeping certain rules. And by calling it, as, a, as it were, the ABCs, he's taking a poke at these self-confident, um, <clears throat> overwise philosophers. What he's saying is, they think they have a highfalutin philosophy. They're just going back to the ABCs of the world. Worldly religion has something in common. Every worldly religion is a system of works. You keep the rules, you do this, you do that, and you work yourself up to God. And all of that is opposed to the cross of Christ and to exalting Christ in his uh, person and work. Now, I will grant that there are demonic forces behind all worldly religions. So I'm not denying that. I just don't think that's Paul's main idea. I think what he's poking at here is uh, these guys think you can get to God by keeping all their rules. And we'll look at those rules um, down the way. And Paul is saying no. Over in the book of Galatians, you'll remember the false teachers there were saying, well, we believe in Jesus. We just believe you have to add Jewish circumcision in order to be saved and keep the Jewish ceremonial law. That's all. And Paul there um, mentions they also talked about observing days and months and seasons and years uh, to be saved. In Colossae, there's debate on the extent to which the false teachers were emphasizing circumcision. But they also, you'll notice, if you look down at verse 16, emphasize food and drink, keeping religious festivals, new moons, Sabbath days, that sort of thing. And uh, in verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All of that is man-made rules that they're um, tacking on, saying we believe in Christ. It's just that he isn't going to make you full and complete unless you keep these rules. And they're adding that kind of thing onto the gospel. And um, Paul in verse 23 will say, I grant that looks like it will get you where you want to go. But it doesn't because it can't deal with the heart. It's just tacking on behaviors. And it doesn't deal with the heart. Only the gospel and Christ can change our hearts. Now, in our day, the rules have changed. But anytime you see a rules-based approach to to approaching God, you're into false religion. You're into man-made religion because it exalts the flesh And I've seen groups that do this in two ways. Some groups take a relatively minor doctrine and they elevate it to major status. And then they all take pride in, we all know this doctrine and truth. And those outside don't. And if you want to be initiated into our group, we'll tell you about the doctrines. And it's always not central truth. It's peripheral stuff. The other way they do it they take man-made rules, and they, <clears throat> they add those on. Sometimes it's how you look. 
how you dress, maybe what you eat, what you don't eat. You know, there's all kinds of man-made rules that aren't in the Bible. And they elevate that and they teach, if you'll keep these things, you'll be right with God. And it, again, they boast in the flesh, not in Christ. And Paul is saying, any of that is spiritual counterfeit. Hold it up to the light of the gospel and you'll see it's missing Christ. And that's what he says in verse 8. Uh, true Christianity is according to Christ. And so in verses 9 through 12, he goes on to show how Christ is the center of true Christian um, belief and Christian walk. So in verses 9 through 12, then, he makes the point that union with the living Christ is all we need. And here he makes three assertions, and they're all set off by the phrase, in him. And they're all assertions about the sufficiency of Christ. In verse 9, in him, he shows the sufficiency of Christ himself. In verse 10 and verse 11, he shows the sufficiency we enjoy by virtue of our union with Christ. And as we go through these verses, keep in mind, you're only hearing half the conversation. Paul is, is taking jabs at these false teachers. And so some of the language and the words he uses are deliberately attacking them, even though we don't know for sure what they were teaching. We have to guess. First of all, in verse 9, he shows that Christ is sufficient because he is eternal God in human flesh. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is one of the most direct, clear statements about the deity of Christ that you will find in all the Bible. It's hard to conceive. How could he say that any more clearly than he says it? Um, the false teachers, as I mentioned, were emphasizing a concept of fullness. And they were saying, well, we grant that you're Christian, but you're not full unless you have our teaching. And our teaching will fill you up and we'll, we'll give you some extra that Paul and Epaphras haven't, haven't taught you. Also, they may have viewed the flesh as evil, you know, as the body is dirty and not good. And so here, Paul is asserting, number one, Christ is full of deity. He is fully God, but also he is fully God in human form, bodily. And so he's emphasizing the full deity, full humanity of Christ. The word deity that Paul uses in verse 10 is used here only in the New Testament. There's a similar word. Well, it's, it's similar in spelling, different in meaning, in Greek, it's only one letter difference. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. And there Paul states that God's divine nature is clearly seen in his creation. And what Paul is saying there is, if you will look at what God has made, whether it's your human body or look out at the stars at night, and there are billions of galaxies made up of billions of stars, that tells you something about God. God is great. God is immense. He is powerful. Uh, the way he made our bodies shows he is incredibly smart. Uh, all of the, the creation tells us about God, but the creation is not God. 
The creation is only reflecting God. But the word in verse 9 means, according to R.C. Trench, who wrote synonyms of the New Testament, he said the word means that Jesus Christ was and is absolute and perfect God. So not just part of the divine nature. He doesn't just reflect the divine nature. He is God in human flesh. I was curious how the Jehovah's Witnesses deal with verse 9. So I got out the, I have a copy of the New New World Translation. It's their botched up translation of the Bible. And uh, they say that uh, the divine quality dwells in Jesus. The divine quality. Well, that could dwell in anybody. And uh, that's not the meaning of the Greek words. So they mistranslate the text deliberately to protect their view that Jesus isn't God. Um, fullness refers to the totality of the divine powers and attributes, uh, Bishop Lightfoot says. The totality of the divine powers and attributes dwell in Jesus. And that word dwell is present tense. And so it means it always has dwelled in Jesus, does dwell in Jesus, and will dwell in Jesus. Remember in John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus was contending with some Jews who were challenging him. And he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, not I was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because they recognized he was claiming deity. Because that phrase, I am, goes back to Exodus 3, where Moses asked God, give me your name. And, and God said, tell them I am sent you. And so they put that together. So Paul says Jesus is fully God, but then he also asserts he's fully human. He says all of this, God's fullness dwells in Jesus bodily, which refers to his incarnation. The eternal word of God took on human flesh through the virgin birth. And so Jesus possessed a sinless human body. Now, um, we all are born in sin. We'll look at that next week. Jesus was not. He was born like Adam was made uh, sinless before he sinned. And um, so Jesus, fully man, fully God, had to be both to be our Savior. A few weeks ago, I quoted another uh, well-known Anglican bishop named Hanley Mool, and he made this statement, a Savior not quite God is a bridge broken at the farther end. It's a great way to remember. You can't get across to God if Jesus isn't God, and then I would add, a Savior not quite man is a bridge broken at this end. Because he has to be fully God to atone for all the sins of, of his people. But he has to be fully man to atone for human sins. And so Jesus is both. Uh, he had to be made like us, as the book of Hebrews says, so that he could be our faithful high priest so he could sympathize with our weaknesses. So Paul's point then in verse 9 is this. Why do you need to turn to this empty deceptive philosophy when you have Christ? 
Christ is fully God. Christ is fully man. And we're in him. So in him, we have been made full. And uh, he alone can atone for our sins. He alone lives to make intercession for us. So his second point is that Christ then is sufficient because in union with him, we're made complete. And the Greek text of verse 10 literally would read like this, and you are in him having been fulfilled who is the head of all rule and authority. And so what I'm pointing out is the word that's translated complete in verse 10 in the Greek text is related to the word fullness, Jesus' fullness in verse 9. And what Paul is saying here is Christ has the fullness of deity dwelling in him. You're in him, and so you're fulfilled, made complete in him. You don't need anything else. The Living Bible paraphrases verse uh, 10 this way. So you have everything when you have Christ, and you are filled with God through your union with Christ. You know, when you're born in this world, you're born complete. Unlike a tadpole that has to grow its legs and turn into a frog, you got the whole works when you're born. Now, you can't use it all at that point. You don't know how to use your legs. You're not strong enough. You're not mature enough to understand all of your functions and all of that. But you get the whole package right from the start. And it's the same when you're born spiritually. You get Christ. And when you get Christ, you get the whole thing. There's nothing lacking. You don't understand all of that, but you get everything. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so in Christ, we have what we need. As we grow in Christ, we grow to understand, oh, wow, I got this when I got Christ. And I got that when I got Christ. And it's uncovering all the riches of Christ uh, as you grow in him. But the point is we have it all. Then Paul adds at the end of verse 10 that Christ is the head over all rule and authority. So the false teachers were promoting, as I said, the worship of angels. In chapter 1, Paul pointed out Christ made the angels. Here he's pointing out Christ rules the angels. So the point is, why worship the creature rather than the creator? Why worship those who are ruled rather than he who rules? And so he's pointing us to Christ. Now, at this point, maybe you're thinking, this is all wonderful doctrine, but how does this help me practically? Because, frankly, I live in a real world where I struggle against sin. Sometimes I don't always win. Uh, So how does all this stuff about being complete in Christ relate to where I live? Paul answers that in verses 11 and 12, where he shows that Christ is sufficient because in union with him, in his death and resurrection, we have power over sin. Let me read verses 11 and 12 again. And in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith 
in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And we'll carry on that theme of in him or with him next week in verse 13. But I need to just try to deal with verses 11 and 12 this morning due to time. Now, as I said, some scholars doubt that the uh, Colossian heretics were emphasizing circumcision. I think that it may have been a component of their teaching. In case you don't understand all of what that means, in the Old Testament, Genesis 17, God commanded Abraham to remove the foreskin of all the males with him as a sign of God's covenant with him and that Israel, his descendants, would do the same. Over the years, the Jews came to take great pride in the fact that they were circumcised, whereas the Gentiles were not. And they began to trust in that outward physical sign and not apply the spiritual part of it. And there was a big debate in the first century church that erupted because some men called Judaizers began to teach that in addition to faith in Christ, you needed as a Gentile to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic ceremonial law. And Paul contended with them, and it came to a big head at the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts 15, we learn, thankfully, that that was resolved in favor of, no, those men are wrong. We need to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now, as you know, errors are not always squashed, even though they're squashed. They have a way of having a life of their own. And so this error kept plaguing Paul. Wherever he went, the Judaizers came in with their false teaching. One of the symbolic, main symbolic meanings of circumcision was the removal of the flesh so that a man could be pure before God. And in the Old Testament, it talks about being circumcised in heart, which is the real spiritual picture of it. It means being pure inwardly and not just the outward ritual. And Paul refers to that here when he mentions in verse 11... Uh, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What he's talking about, as I understand it, is when you were joined to Christ, he cut off our sinful nature so that we can now live in holiness before him. Now, some scholars, and this is where this gets very complicated, some scholars say the circumcision of Christ refers to his death on the cross. I don't agree with that. I think the circumcision of Christ refers to him spiritually dealing with our flesh when he died on the cross, that when we trust in him, uh, he removes the power of the flesh from us, and that that is pictured, as verse 12 goes on to say, in baptism. So in baptism, a believer is immersed in the water, and It was interesting that even in my reading this week, those who teach that you are to be sprinkled admit the picture here is immersion. Um, Even Calvin says that the word means to dip, to immerse. So when we're immersed in water, 
It's a picture of being totally identified with Jesus in his death and burial. When you come out of the water, a picture of being first cleansed and then raised to new life in him. And uh, so all of that takes place at the moment, notice verse 12, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So at the moment of salvation, that happens, but then it is subsequently pictured when we are baptized and give testimony publicly that we are now identified with Christ uh, through the new birth. Now, that raises two practical and, I might add, controversial questions that I have to deal with here, and I hope I'm still friends with all my friends after I deal with it, Um, but I got to bring this up. First question, has baptism now replaced circumcision as the sign of the new covenant so that now we should baptize infants even as circumcision was applied to Jewish male boys, Jewish boys after eight days of life? Um, I'm only going to skim the surface here. I have a whole sermon on the website on why we do not baptize infants if you want more. Um, And by the way, I believe that there are good people on both sides of this issue. I just think the other side is wrong. So uh, here's, here's why I think baptism is for believers in a nutshell. There are obvious parallels between baptism and circumcision, but there are many differences. And circum- our baptism is not the sign of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is because Jesus said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He never says that about baptism. Also, while there is a specific command to baptize the male physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, uh, there is no command and there is no example in the New Testament of baptizing the physical descendants of believers. Also, even if you grant that this is a full, baptism is a fulfillment of circumcision, in the Old Covenant, it was a type. It was a type. In the New Covenant, the spiritual reality, Galatians 3, 7, is that we are all children of Abraham through faith in Christ. We're the true seed of Abraham when we believe in Christ. And so just as it was applied to Abraham's physical descendants in the age of type, It should be applied to Abraham's spiritual descendants, namely believers, in the age of fulfillment. Baptism, as you know, pictures conversion. And infants are not converted. And in my humble opinion, it damages many who are baptized as infants and think they're good to go because they had water sprinkled on them as a baby and their trust is not in Christ. So, I believe we should baptize those who give credible evidence of faith in Jesus Christ. And if you trace it through, and Paul links it here with faith in verse verse 12, um, I have a sermon on why baptism matters where I go through every verse in the book of Acts that refers to baptism. And you'll see they believed and were baptized, believed and were baptized. There's never any other... order than that. Uh, Now that I made enemies on that issue, the second issue is, uh, 
if my sinful nature has been cut off by Christ, then how come it seems to be so alive and well? That's a hard question. But let me try to answer it by just letting Paul answer it. If you jump down to Colossians 3.3, and we'll study this more in the future, Paul says this, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then two verses later, Colossians 3.5, and here I take issue with the New American Standard Bible. It mistranslates and interprets Colossians 3.5. Colossians 3.5 literally reads, Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body with regard to immorality and all these other sins he names. So in verse 3, you're dead. In verse 5, put to death. What's going on? Is Paul contradicting himself in two verses? I think not. Rather, the tension is between our position in Christ, we died when he died, and our practice. All right, we have to apply that by putting to death the deeds of the body in our daily walk. And so we need to understand in Christ we have a new identity. We are in him. He died, we died. He was risen, we're risen. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, we're seated there in him, as Ephesians 2 says. And all of those things are true because we're in him. Uh, And so Paul is saying, set our mind on those things and in your daily walk, apply them by killing the flesh, putting it to death as you encounter various temptations. So when Paul says that Christ has removed the body of our flesh, which I take to refer to our sinful nature through spiritual circumcision, he doesn't mean our old nature has been eradicated. Uh, Some Bible teachers that I highly respect teach that, and I think that's an error. They say, oh, your old nature is gone. Really? Well, why am I tempted every day toward pride and lust and greed and selfishness and all the other sins that tempt me? Uh, Well, that's your flesh, they'll say. Well, if you want to wrangle about words, all right, flesh, old nature, uh, indwelling sin, whatever you want to call it. I know there is within me something that tempts me toward sin. And I think it's detrimental to deny that. Paul is saying here, as well as in Romans 6, and you can read my sermons or listen to them on that if you care to. But he's saying the power of sin has been broken through our identity with Jesus Christ. And so we can count ourselves dead to sin alive to God in Jesus Christ and put to death the deeds of the body as we encounter them in our daily struggle against sin. So, to sum it up, Paul is saying, because God has raised Christ from the dead, he's victorious over the devil, we can have victory over sin and over the devil because we're in Christ through faith. So the idea is, don't depend on man-made rules, Don't depend on man-made rituals. Depend on Christ. He indwells you. You indwell or you are in him, identified with him. And that union with Christ is the spiritual reality behind the outward rituals such as baptism and communion. And Paul is saying Christ is all we need. Religion won't cut it. 
Religion won't help you. Christ will. And so make sure that you have a relationship with the living Christ through faith in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, some of these things are difficult for us to understand, and we need your spirit to bring them home, especially when we're out there in the battle and we're tempted. I pray that your truth of our identity in Christ would come back to us and give us solid victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Father, I pray if there are any here who thought that Christianity was a matter of rules and religion and ritual, and they don't know Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see that they've missed the heart of Christianity, which is knowing Christ and him crucified. And I pray, Father, that they would put their trust in Jesus and his shed blood on the cross to atone for their sin and that they would then, as new creatures in Christ, begin to have an eternal relationship with the risen Christ. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.